Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi, folks, and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. And I'm going on to episode 161, uh, Writing During Wartime. Just the one that got a bit delayed. Sorry about that. But we got it all together over here. Now, as much as I'm going to be talking about letters and correspondence, you know, writing in general, what that means during wartime, which is a, a different thing than, than a regular writing or um or even artistic writing, uh, I'm not always going to have it in sequence. So, I mean, I'll mention where it comes from a particular period in time or war or something, but it's not always going to be in sequence just because of the way I had to, the way I had to do this, okay? So, in some instances, we'll actually be able to read some correspondence from actual soldiers during those periods of time, and we'll be able to comment on, you know, the different things that were, they were going through, and of course, the, uh, literally the different, uh, times and their lifestyles and how it really had an impression on on their viewpoint and 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 their access to information and tools instruments even the day of time or or the date of time so it's pretty uh, astounding uh what we uh take for granted even in modern warfare compared to uh where from from 100 years or 200 years ago okay all right now i don't exactly have any letters from um people who were in war during like the Roman times or something, <laughs> okay, there really wasn't a lot of those average soldiers that even had that kind of literacy, and quite frankly, uh, with the exception of a few generals uh, like uh, uh, Augustus and and, uh, and, uh, and Julius, uh, who um, wrote down a number of things in their diaries and then had it transcribed by uh, historians, um, that's all we really have, and believe it or not, is not as interesting as, as brilliant as he might have been. It really doesn't help us understand the, the common foot soldiers and the things that went on in their lives and in the war. I mean, he's living in a tent with servants. So war or not, it's not all that different than when he was living when he wasn't at war. I don't know, in a temple with servants. Pretty much the same thing. So it really helps to have the, uh, the uh, foot soldiers' uh, point of view, so to speak. Okay? I really think it frames a lot of the show on, on writing during wartime because it brings a lot more uh, gravity certainly a lot more reality and definitely a whole bunch more history to the whole situation all right so and some of these things i knew about and other things that i'm i'm really surprised about so some things that as you put together a show you learn as well as as the audience now i didn't know this at all um during world war one france they had uh what they called war grand uh excuse me war godmothers and these were pretty much uh, women that took the volunteer job uh, the, the government had asked them to do to write letters to the soldiers, uh, the French soldiers in the front of World War I. Uh, many who did not have uh, either families or anybody that was uh, able or willing to write to them because um, the French had understood early on that 
with the uh, with the advent of trench warfare, and we'll talk a bit about what that what that really means in, in the war. Um, it meant the wars were going to go on a whole lot longer, and it meant that people would be in these places uh, for longer periods of time without anything to do. And I'm not saying, you know, having to fight for your life with a gun <laughs> in a battlefield is better than sitting around doing nothing. But regards mental health, that could be a problem because if you're sitting around too long, you're listening to gunfire and mortar shells and all kinds of stuff for weeks on end, it does tear into a person's mental health. And in some cases, you know, without the correspondence, without a, a real feeling of a connection of back home or even a feeling of just of of. I don't know, some rough version of normalcy, um, people can lose uh, their mental health or start having it degraded to the point when it is time to do battle, they wind up becoming a danger to themselves or maybe even to members of their own unit. So uh, they recognized that it was really important to keep up morale. Now remember, uh, from World War II onward to the back of those wars, morale was really the code word for mental health. That's really what it was. They understood it was important, but it was not something they were willing to talk about. It was still a big stigma. We really didn't even talk about mental health really until until the Vietnam War, you know, which was about uh, 30, I don't know, 20, 20, 25 years later after, after the end of World War II. So it was still not really a topic to talk about. And don't get me wrong, it's still... It was still a stigma. Uh, it was still a stigma in society d- during the Vietnam War, but it was still talked about more, especially in the VA hospitals and you know in the aftermath. It, it was a real issue, and uh, unfortunately, it wasn't ever done very well with Hollywood because you know they had every Vietnam War veteran coming out of there. They're all loon birds and wanting to kill each other or kill the world or uh, lost their mind or something. So, I mean, yeah, it definitely had an effect. But again, you know, people get carried away with that too, and to this day. You know, I've had to be on top of Hollywood and write them letters about, hey, stop all of this stereotype where every veteran comes out of war and we're all crazy. Hey, that's enough of that crap. And really, it, it gets carried away, you know. And every other show, they're taking a the hostage, they're shooting their mother, they're doing something. Come on. Lots of people have issues and they're not doing any of that stuff. Okay? Most mental illnesses from warfare is a private matter. Just like Rod Sterling and all that he went through in the, in the show we had talked about very recently. It was a private affair. It might have showed up in his writing here and there, and it did on purpose, uh, but uh, Rod Sterling had a normal family and a normal uh, marriage. And, and, and for the most parts, you know, never engaged in anything that would be even remotely considered violent for his entire life until he died of a, you know, of a heart attack on the, on the surgical table. So a perfect example of somebody who had a, an extreme version of depression and what they used to call shell shock and still was able to manage to have a life. So there's plenty of people out there like that. And it would be nice if Hollywood take advantage of some of those people too, rather than just making up some uh, ridiculous story every other episode. Now, I found it really interesting that these war godmothers from France, they they became pen pals for soldiers for years uh, to keep up morale. In some cases, they even became romantically attached. Um, Yeah, um, oftentimes these uh, soldiers that are in, you know, 18 to 25 and uh, the godmothers were a lot older so wow but you know it is France so I guess I can't be too surprised but it was a good program for them to have and I I wanted to mention it because it's a a really excellent example of of real writing during wartime because you could be really boosting somebody's uh, morale as they say or mental health 
you know, by, by giving them some information about what's going back on at home or just talking about some of the basic things of life that, you know, you'd like to be able to get through this war and get back to, you know, almost like, you know, I'm going to live through this war so I can get back home to, you know, eating, I don't know, French pies and, you know, and, and escargot or something. But, hey, it was a worthy effort and I wanted to bring it up because I, I really I really liked what they what they had done. Now, it's interesting that we've had a number of writers who went through war experiences. We talked about Rod Sterling, or rather, we could even briefly talk about it again in the show, just just to touch upon it as you know the part of writers in you know in wartime. We had some of though that really didn't do a whole lot of talking about it or mentioning it, and it's hard to know why. Um, Ernest Hemingway was a real uh, real big example of that. We know briefly. And his bio and and just from a, a brief conversation or a note from a, a friend or a relative that they mentioned it and that was it. He never really expounded about it at all, which is unusual because Hermes Hemingway was not a shy man <laughs> in any regards. I mean, he ran over to the Spanish Civil War and started doing all the journalist work there too. You know, but although in this particular case in World War One, he. Uh, he was uh, 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 an actual uh, fighter. He was actually a, a soldier in there. So he wasn't doing any real writing then. But um, he never really spoke a lot about that. And based on what we learned now, maybe it gives the example why. We don't absolutely still know. But it gives us a better example. Because sometimes you feel that... Um, and all the general public feels that uh, people are not talking about their wartime experiences because it's either too too close to their you know to the psyche, or or maybe um, they're just not too happy with some of the things they did, or maybe even sometimes the things that were did to them, you know, um, it's not an unusual um, occurrence that the uh, soldiers that were captured as POWs had even less to say about their wartime experiences than the ones that were injured in, in battle. So I don't know if there's an element of shame there or an embarrassment or hard to know. Or maybe it's even more brutal than just regular combat. I don't know. I was never captured. so. But I, I, it's not hard to imagine, and I'm certainly not looking to be a judge of that. I'm just, I'm just wondering, as a writer and as people who wrote about things like that, why we have so few... You know, of those type of letters. We simply don't have any that I could find. I have plenty of letters, and it wouldn't be on this show, but I have plenty of letters of people who wrote things while they are in jail because they were um, they were political activists or people that um, were jailed, maybe even, uh, uh, you know, in a unfair manner. Although there's some instances when they were jailed in a fair manner, even if they were decent people, you know. Uh, and we'll have a show about that because that, that's also another interesting thing about writing during... During jail time, you know, when you're a, a, a political activist or, you know, some kind of activist. So, yeah, it's definitely a show we want to have down the line. Now, well, Ernest Hemingway. We learn, and this is for the first time, because oftentimes, even when we have some basic access to somebody's medical records, especially if they died and everything, a lot of the times the medical records, uh, it, they can be vague. Or it could just be a general thing. Yeah, he had surgery on his leg. Thanks. We don't really know anything more than that. And that's what happened with Ernest Hemingway. We didn't know this until now. Uh, I'll mention it on the show. We, we learned this some years back. 
But before that, we didn't know anything about this other than he was injured, yeah. Uh, apparently, he, um, he rescued some of, his, um, some of his friends from an area that he thought could possibly get hit with a mortar shell. And it did. It, and, and it got hit to where it was close to him. Uh, he had lost some of his hearing there for a little while. But, and this is what we learned, it was from a letter of somebody that was in that unit that he helped save. So they wrote this back home. And eventually uh, somebody had realized it was about, because uh, they mentioned Ernest, but they realized it was about Ernest Hemingway because it said Ernest H. You know, so they, they knew it was him. And they wound up sending it over to one of the uh, the uh, the collections of letters. I think this is the one that, that was being collected uh, by the Smithsonian. They, they have a campaign right now where they're trying to get together one million letters from, from wartime, of various wars, to put into their uh, to their archive. For, for study and, you know, historical reference and, and, and all of that. And so this person wrote that Ernest Hemingway got hit from the shrapnel of this shell and it went into his, into his lower part of his body, his butt and his legs. 247 pieces of metal went into his body. And he had to literally... As he's writhing in pain, they're doing whatever they can for the pain, but he had to literally have to lay there as the surgeons are going through and taking out every single piece individually. I have no idea what that would be in terms of pain. They don't even mention that in the letter, and maybe it's the reason why he doesn't mention it. Maybe it's just so painful, it's not something we we'll have to talk about. Maybe he's just embarrassed because, you know, Ernest Hemingway, unlike a lot of those writers back then, was quite a macho kind of guy, where George Orwell was a brave man, he wasn't very macho. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway, he was macho. He'd be running around doing all kinds of stuff. Whatever. That's how he was. So maybe he didn't want to mention that in his own works or his own voice or his own stories to friends or family because, uh, I mean, some of it obviously went into his butt. Maybe he thought that was too embarrassing. Maybe that messes up his macho image. I don't know. I'm guessing. I honestly don't know. What we do know is that he he never mentioned exactly how he got injured and what it what occurred. So you might want to see something why why he didn't do that. We're all different people, so I don't know if um you know it's something that uh, I, if I was a soldier um, in that circumstance I would mention or not. It's just it's really hard to know. It just really depends on. The kind of person you are. I don't really see it as that embarrassing. He he might have so. And and I got that. That's that's understandable. Now, he amongst a number of writers. Back in uh, especially in uh, in World War Two. Okay. Although, uh, let's not keep in uh, uh let's keep in mind that um. There are other, other writers from other wars that had written books similar uh, you know, to about the war. But World War II seems to be the most crop of writers that, were, that wrote books about the experience that, uh, that stuck with us to this day. Uh, uh, Kirk Vonnegut, he, he wrote uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, became a really big hit from him. Um, Catch-22. It's literally uh, in the dictionary now from Joseph Heller. You know, literally the, you know, <laughs> you damn you do, you damn you don't type of situation. That's what he called Catch-22 from his experiences in World War II. Ernest Hemingway, uh, many considered the best book ever written about World War II. It's a novel, so, you know, obviously it's been fictionalized, but it has the, you know, the quality and the grammar. 
and, and the gravity and, and certainly the, the, the ultimate truth about that war and, and for whom the bell tolls, which, by the way, I think is one of like the coolest uh, titles for a novel like ever. I mean, really, that's like if I had titles of novels, the top five, I swear to God, that'd probably be in top one. That'd be like the first one. Is that so awesome? It's just, uh, it, it perfectly fits everything he did. It's really the kind of title you want to have on any book or anything you're doing. It's just perfect. And um, here's an interesting woman, uh, Irene Nemirowski, a, a, a Ukrainian uh, Jew who lived in France. She wrote a series of books. She was going to have it a series of five books, but she only got to the second book that got released uh, called uh, Sweet Francois. And um, she wind up being captured uh, with the help of the VC French. Those are the French that cooperated with the Germans to kill Jews. Thank you very much, people. Lovely. Um, and they uh, put her in Auschwitz and she was killed. So she never got a chance to complete those. But it's also a very important set of books about World War II, especially where it has a lot to talk about, about France. So, and, and also I wanted to mention, um, I think she was probably one of the few female writers during that time that wrote about the war. There simply wasn't very many. Not because, uh, in, in essence, they were like banned from writing or something, because that wasn't the case. I mean, women have been writing books since the 1800s, okay? And we're going to have a, 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 an episode coming up in November about uh, gender, female, and, and writing. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But um, uh, she's one of the few that just wrote about the war itself. There wasn't too many. And there wasn't really many uh, female correspondents either. And that has more to do with just keeping women away from the battlefront. So, yeah, that would be... Uh, I guess you could say an example of, uh, you know, institutional or, or cultural sexism. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll go with that because that's true. Not that it's right, but it was true back then. So it's a, a major reason why there wasn't female uh, correspondence out there, journalists doing very much. Although she uh, she learned and, and did a lot of research and was was very active, and that's how she was able to put together her books. This is for a few people that are doing that. Oftentimes, as we've seen in World War One and even in World War Two. You know, uh, women in any kind of writing tend to be more pen pals. Um, I know there was a couple of columnists in, uh, in the United States that were doing something for a while. But, you know, there's oftentimes censorship, which we'll talk about over here. And usually their roles had more to do with um, working in factories like in America or becoming uh, nurses and, and, and doing work in the field hospitals. And don't get me wrong, these are all very important things. But wherever it came to... The flow of information or even the fighting himself, it was pretty much restricted to men. Now, and I'm not trying to beat about France here because all countries have done this. I mean, literally since the Roman times. You have a war, the next thing you know, you don't want too much information getting out there and the regular means of information, you know. And so even Rome stopped people from broadcasting things on the streets because, you know, they used to have a guy they'd be on the streets and he'd literally talk about things that were going on. You know, this person got elected to this and this person opened this business over here. And don't forget to get the the cornflakes. And it's been sponsored by this gladiator. They literally had advertisements and sponsorships and all kinds of stuff. And there'd be a guy out in the in the public square literally making a big announcement about this. So that was their form of news. And that that couldn't even happen. They would he wouldn't be able to say any of that stuff about the war. And people felt that was unusual because it's like there's a giant war going on. My son's out there. And all you're talking about is cornflakes. Uh, so they eventually just stopped doing it because people just didn't like the idea. If he wasn't going to talk about it, then we don't got nothing to talk about. But 
going forward, we found in the newspapers in America, newspapers uh, all around the world, obviously in Germany, uh, in both wars, a huge censorship, especially during Hitler's time, where you know it was only going to be writing about stuff that was, uh, you know, positive for the for the Reich and not anybody else. Uh, France uh, was no exception. Even though it was a free society, they, they clamped down big time on things. So it was okay. I don't know if it was okay militarily, but it was okay that they didn't really worry too much about somebody writing any kind of details about a war thing in their letter. Because that went to the privacy of a family and that was it. But you couldn't bring that to a journalist or to a newspaper and say, hey, he's saying they're over in this thing doing that. That would not be allowed. That would be censored out, of course, because that could be valuable information. So in that part, I understand and I don't have a problem with some of that censorship. It makes some sense in the terms of a national security situation. I mean, the country's at war. Obviously, you just can't go around having free flow of everything. So I got that. You know, of course, at times, you know, it gets it gets carried away, too, because sometimes, especially in uh, um, France and in, in America during the um, the Vietnam War, sometimes reports were, were deliberately altered or information was taken that was deliberately false and still published to, to make people feel better. That's never a good thing either. Take information out because it could hurt people out in the battlefront and you don't want the information to get to the enemy. All right, I got that. We have to live with that on a temporary basis. I'm all right with that. But, you know, lying to people about the, car, the progress of a war, what we're doing, this and that, well, that's crap then, and that's not really helpful. I don't know how that helps anybody other, you know, than uh, to mislead people. Well, it's never good. War is already a pretty horrible thing. You don't want to make it worse. But unfortunately, we do and have had examples of that in the past. Now, what I found quite unusual is oftentimes the letters from soldiers, they seem to really vary in terms of uh, the quality of information or even the subject matter, depending on the war. And, and a good example is you'll see a real difference in a, a letter from a wartime person in the Civil War of the United States versus World War One or World War Two. Okay? There'll be a real big difference. And and one of the things that you'll notice, like I'm going to read this Civil War letter to you from America, is that in so many instances, there is a lot of differences between not only that particular soldier in that war and then let's say a war like 100 years later, but there's incredible differences on just some of the daily things because you'll find that a lot of foot soldiers in the Civil War they wrote these letters to, to their parents and to their relatives and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't even have a date on it because many times they didn't have a way to tell time. They even, a lot of them didn't even have timepieces. Most of them didn't even know what date it was. I mean, you have soldiers that don't even know what month it was. Sometimes they didn't even know generally what time it was unless they knew the season and depending on how long they were in conflict. Oh, yeah, it's going into the fall now. It's starting to get chilly. <laughs> I mean, that's how they knew. Versus um, a letter from a, a you know an established commander, even in the Civil War, they had a, a, a better idea. They had maps, they had calendars, they had timepieces, they had more access to information, more access to equipment, probably because of their station in not only life but in the military. So you'll get those letters, which by the way I'm not going to read. I, I find the foot soldier ones a lot more interesting. You'll get those letters, and, and you'll notice a, a gigantic difference. They're, they're far more formal. 
far more educated and they simply have far more access to information. And the reason why I'm not really reading any of those is because I'm shocked at how boring it can be. They're deeply personal and quite boring. They're, they're obviously, they're operating in the information security sense of they're not telling you anything because they're trained to not do that. Where a foot soldier actually reveals things. But back then, you know, it, it could take a, a month or two to get a letter to somebody. But then the information is useless. So where the, the soldiers who are uh, who officers, I mean, that, that could get to their, their relatives in a day or two. Because they had couriers and they had, you know, wagons to get to the north and you know, or wagons to get down to the south. They had all kinds of means of doing that. Some of it can be transcribed and telegraphed right over in the same day. Now nah, the foot soldiers didn't have those kind of luxuries. So those are the more interesting letters, and that's why I've, I've made the choice on that, you know? All right, so let's go with the first one over here. Naturally, <laughs> no date, no time, no, no, no year, no nothing, all right? And I don't need to mention the names. It's not really important and, and something like this. Okay, so here we go. This is a letter from a soldier in the Civil War in the United States. We have just returned from a trip into the East Tennessee, where we got big amounts of everything to eat, and everything we eat is so good to me, as I've starved out so long on some bread and beef. Uh, the grandma's not always going to be best in some of these things, okay? All that we got while we were there, besieging Chattanooga, up there we got some sweet Irish potatoes, chickens, molasses, wheat bread, and everything that was good for a poor soldier. Oh, how do I wish I could be home now, for it's getting late in the evening. See? <laughs> Just telling outside it's getting late. It's not like he's giving you a time. <clears throat> and I have nothing to eat since breakfast. And no telling when we're going to get rations, for our rations are cut. And since we're our ration wagons behind in coming to this place. So, it's a common tactic, especially during the, the Civil War, where... There are certain supplies you have to leave behind. They're dragging them over to a battlefront doesn't make a lot of sense. Gets people tired, gets people a little distracted. You know, you want them getting ready to focus on the enemy, which, believe it or not, is easier to be done when you're hungry versus when you're chowing down on a piece of, uh, you know, bread or something. This is their thinking. But nevertheless, it was more about the uh, the logistical and, and the tactical use of this. And, of course... The soldier doesn't recognize or maybe does recognize and doesn't mention in the writing. But when they did that, when they left that behind to go up front, they're getting ready to, to get ready for a battle. They just wouldn't bring that with them. There's just no point. Why was it they lose the battle and they lose the wagon and now the soldiers are stealing their food? So they left that far behind for safety reasons and, of course, uh, it would be a best thing for their troops. He mentions that. So, you know, that means that what would happen is in this particular soldier's instance is they eat breakfast, okay, around all their troops, around the equipment, around the, uh, the, that ration wagon, and then they move forward and march over to the, where the battle staging area is going to be, and they leave that behind. All they bring with them is their, their equipment for the war, and that's it. So that's the reason why. I mean, it's a, probably a long march. He's already talking about it's the evening. If you think about the breakfast, let's say the breakfast... I mean, in the military times, probably 6 o'clock in the morning. And if you're saying it's the evening time, depending on what season uh, he is in, in the United States during this war. Because remember, I can't even tell because I don't have a date on this thing either. All right? Just like he, he didn't write one. He didn't know one. All right? It's a good chance, just for argument's sake over here, 
uh, he ate six o'clock in the morning. It's probably 12 hours later between marching, getting some rest, getting everything set up and everything like that, because most likely that next morning they're going to be fighting. So there's a good chance that, you know, they're hungry now. And if they're not going to be fighting in, in the early light of the next morning, that's probably what they're going to do. I mean, these are soldiers that are starving. I mean, <laughs> literally, they're hungry as heck. But that's what you had to do back then. That, that was the last meal they were going to have until that conflict was over with. You know, so. And that was what's going on with that soldier. You could see uh, they had a lot of the uh, the details about just their daily life and, and a lot of those type of, uh, of letters because that's all they really can report back. Uh, you're talking about, in many instances, soldiers that don't have the same kind of sophistication in writing. They don't have that same level of education. Uh, it, it's shocking to a lot of people to discover, because a lot of people are not aware of this, that in many letters that w that went on for the progress of the war, you, you hear soldiers talking about how they're friends with slaves. They call them by their first name, how they grew up with them and they played with them. They mentioned this stuff in stories, how some of them uh, regret that uh, that slavery even has to continue. Some of them don't even like it. Uh, and you'll find in many, many instances, uh, there's soldiers that they never even had slaves. It's just something they heard about. They wasn't even living in an area that had them. Some of them just did their own farming, their own stuff, because they couldn't afford a slave. So it really wasn't part of their life, you know. And, and, and in some cases, they often make snarky remarks about, this is great, I'm fighting for slavery, and we don't even own a slave. So it's an unusual things to be hearing when lots of times, historically and even culturally to this day in America, we write off the entire South uh, uh, as a monolithical, you know, anti-black, uh, anti-anything uh, normal uh, block of people. And you find out through letters and, and through all kinds of correspondence from, from even sometimes the, the, the personal diaries of generals. Generals who, who publicly said how much they love slavery would say in their own diaries, uh, I'm not sure about this, and I think I might need God's forgiveness, and I, I fight for my, uh, my republic, but I'm not really sure if I'm even on the right side. Generals saying this sort of stuff. So it's amazing that uh, privately, uh, they were still human, they had still had questions. It's one of the major reasons why we don't want to have history written off because some people might be upset. Put it inside a museum then if people don't want to have a statue outside and talk a little bit about who these people were, good and bad and different. There's some instances, oh, it's only going to be bad. Fine, then talk about that. That's history. We need to know about that. But in these letters, it, it tells a, a dramatically different story. Sorry, it's not the narrative of what everybody wants to hear, that every soldier we read a letter from from Civil War hated everybody and couldn't wait to murder people. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case. In, in fact, I'm surprised at how few letters there were of, uh, of that sort. They simply don't really exist because many people simply just didn't feel that way. War is a serious thing no matter what you're, for, why you're fighting for. And that's what we learn with letters. And from letters and from the writing during a wartime, it really does give us a better perspective on the human condition and on when people were thinking, even if they wasn't publicly saying it or, or publicly writing it in, into an essay or, or, or a newspaper article or, or even talking to a reporter about it. It's still valid. It still lets you know something about what, what people were going on 
in in their minds and even what and what was going on in their hearts. Now it's really easy to say, well, why did they just take that and change their mind, and do things? Well, we don't really know. We don't really know what have happened. We don't know if there was ever going to be a revolution in the South without the Civil War that could have caused this. We just don't know. Did the uh, Civil War fasten that up? You know, by doing this, we don't know. We really don't. But we do know is that there's so much evidence of people questioning everything, questioning the the order of things, questioning the morality of what was going on. There was a lot, a lot of questions, and they didn't think. In many instances, those questions were going to be answered with a victory or not. So they still had the questions because, remember, those things they felt was still going to go on. There were soldiers that wrote letters thinking that even when the war was over with, and even if they lost, that it wouldn't change much. It would just be back to where everybody went back to normal. So there's a lot of that folks that did not understand or, or just didn't realize. All right. Of course, enormous amount of correspondence with uh, World War II. I don't mean to skip over World War One, but I don't have as much information on letters on, on that one. So I got a, a really good one here from World War Two. Now, when the Smithsonian had put a national call out, they wanted to try to get a, like a, a million letters. Uh, and so they got a, a number of letters back from people. Families had found stuff from when their relatives have died. I don't know if you realize this or not, but World War One and World War Two, there's very few people left alive on the planet from all the countries involved in that because they've gotten into their 90s right now and some of their hundreds. So, I mean, these people are dying off. Without these letters, we don't really know a lot of what they were thinking or maybe even sometimes what they were doing. And I know that because the war is over with and we know what happened with, you know, the verdict for it all and everything, it doesn't mean it's done with. There's still a lot to try to understand as we're going forth. So this family had found this letter. Now, many times when, when families find letters, like in this particular family, which is the opposite for them, they kind of knew some of the details already. Not because people were big on talking about it, but they generally talked about it, and that was that. The letters didn't really contain a whole lot of shocking things or interesting things or even new things, but some did. And this one did, and the family was like, wow. All right, so here we go. Something today that made me realize why we're over here fighting this war. Okay, he wrote his, his wife, Betty. That day that we were tasked with Visigin Buchenwald, that was one of the many concentration camps inside of Germany. The Nazi concentration camp, which has been liberated a few days earlier. When we first walked in, we saw all these creatures that were supposed to be men. They were dressed in black and white suits, heads shaved, starving to death. His descriptions of this unbelievable scene are vivid and brutal. Though he told his wife that he had spared the worst of it, finally he wrote, Our time was up, so we boarded our truck and rode home, all just mesmerized and thinking. So imagine what those people were thinking when they liberated that and they saw that, the unbelievable horror of people literally starving to death. People that they look like walking skeletons. I mean, I'm serious. And he mentioned it. They're all in the truck and they're, they're all thinking as they're leaving. So imagine the letters that might have came from them. 
Imagine letters that people didn't write that was just too difficult for them. And others who probably did that we don't have yet. Hopefully we'll eventually have those families find those and, you know, um, give those up for the Smithsonian to study and, and, you know, and to reveal to the public. We don't know. We, we have people that probably wrote letters and burned them later. Some of them that just, you know, they couldn't write of them. So there's probably a lot that's, that's lost, you know, to memory and, and to death. But I thought that was a particularly striking one because it really mentioned a lot about, you know, why if there was somebody was questioning why we're there in that war, boy, they, they got the answer when they when they helped liberate that camp and they went in there and saw all that. Things that are beyond anything from warfare. I mean, it's one thing seeing the bodies, you know, piled up from being shot. It's not the same thing as, as watching somebody, you know, looking like a some kind of a zombie or something. You know, literally starving to death, you can actually see the ribs because the clothing is pretty much barely on them. It's just incredible, the the inhumanity and, and, and the uh, the utter hatred. And and these letters, they, they really help bring that home for us uh, to understand what we were fighting for and what these soldiers went through and, and how, you know, I'm sure later on, you know, that becomes, a, you know, a real mental health issue, a real a real burden to have to carry. And uh, you hope that you forget, and you you just probably can now can never. And this is a family that that didn't even know this happened because he just never mentioned it to him. Now I I found it strikingly different that the letters from soldiers from the Vietnam War on the American side were that that were not only descriptive but man it was just full of a lot of detail that you normally didn't get in in the other wars you didn't hear a whole lot of people talk about yeah I'm putting this musket in this thing and I shot this guy in the face and you know, they just didn't write about stuff like that <laughs> even in World War 1 when they wrote about something more descriptive it was just more about the shells hit near the the trench or they they dropped the chemicals on it and you know we're all burning up but we got to put a mask on quickly and just you know that kind of thing but they didn't write the kind of detail that soldiers wrote so cavalierly in, in, in Vietnam. It, it took me back a bit when I, when I read it for the first time. So I'll read it for you. Also, what also took me back is, again, unlike many of the other wars, apparently even the common foot soldiers in Vietnam, they had access to radio. They had access to, uh, you know, to watches and calendars. Some of them had calendars of, you know, the pinup girls and everything. They tend to knew what date it was in year. <laughs> and almost all the letters had that. Here's one from the March the 4th, 1968. Well, Mom, there's really a war going on over here. We made contact in daylight yesterday for the first time since I've been here. You know how they say that war is not like the movies show it? Well, they're wrong. It's exactly how the movies show it. We were on a company-sized patrol when they hit us. The first platoon was hit in the front... We were next, and then the second platoon was hit in the rear. Wayne was working with the second platoon on the machine guns. They hit the first platoon, and everybody got down. Then they moved up 50 meters, and we moved out of the way to the left. As soon as they moved behind the hedge line, an automatic weapon opened up on us, and we just kept moving. We finally got out of range about 100 meters down the trail. Then we got online and assaulted a hedge line 50 meters in front of us. We didn't even meet any resistance, so we got onto the other side. And then we got down and waited. Then we got the word that the first platoon was in bad shape and they needed us. So we went going down there to move down there to 50 meters, and then we swung to our right to get in 
uh, he uses the word gooks, which is you know, a, a, a racially uh, derogatory term for, for, for Asians or, or Vietnam back then. I'm only reading it because it's in the letter, but obviously not an acceptable word. In the middle of us and the first. We started online. We kept low and moving slow. It was clear, open field that we're going across. We were halfway across when the fire opened up on our right and then we got down again. And the sergeant started yelling at us to keep moving. So we were young, we were brave marines, we got online and we kept moving. Then, our, then the bullets started zipping around our legs and raising dust. We knew for sure that they were shooting at us then. We wasn't about to stay on that line for long. We bolted to the right, ran about 25 meters, and then took behind dirt piled all along this road. So it's amazing that they, they give you that kind of a description. A lot of letters had that. They, they had a lot of detail about what was going on. Because unlike World War II or even World War One, and of course in many instances the Civil War, there wasn't as much downtime, so to speak. You didn't wait around 12 hours, 24 hours. Hell, in some cases in, in, in World War I, like weeks, to do anything. And Vietnam was quick. There was something always going on because they were out there in the middle of the jungle, either getting ambushed or ambushing somebody. You know, it was a, 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 an unconventional war. We didn't have all these regular units out there uh, because they are always getting ambushed by uh, pretty, pretty much people who were guerrillas or fighting more terrorist-type of tactics. They didn't have a, a formal type of army. And it's really reasons why in many instances they, they were quite successful compared to the conventional warfare that we were using. So they, they just didn't have so much of that. And, you know, and, and in that instance, you're going to get a lot of letters from people that later on they write all about this because they're really in the thick of this sort of stuff. Now, that letter sounded like it went on for long, but you have to understand that that could have been an encounter that, that could only have been maybe less than an hour. Because people, they run out of ammunition after a while. They run out of the tactical advantage after a while. They, their position have been discovered, which is part of a way of running out of tactical advantage. Or it could just be that, you know, they want to regroup and, and attack in a different way. So uh, it wasn't like a civil war where you had literally a battle that could go on for hours. And literally thousands of dead. Because they were literally just right on top of each other shooting and doing stuff. You know, something in, in, a, in a Vietnam type of war, you know, the deaths and the casualties, they're, they're not going to be a lot. But because there were so many of these engagements, that's how it, stands, that's how it starts adding up into, into the hundreds and then the thousands as the years went by and into the war. And, and of course, for the other side, I think they got more destroyed from the Air Force bombing them than they did from anybody on the ground shooting them. I think they lost over a million people, and that's just mostly from bombing, probably. All right, folks, so I think you see the, the real big difference on um, writing in general and then writing during wartime. And, of course, there is those historic punctuations, I should may want to say, about how the, the culture during that war and even the station of that person can make a real big, a real big difference on, on what they had to say. I found it unusual that, uh, remember I was mentioning that the letters from the officers in the Civil War were kind of boring, where uh, for some reason the uh, the letters in the, uh, from the officers of the Vietnam War, they were pretty similarly boring. They almost were talking about the same type of things, and you know, obviously they're not revealing anything seriously major about the uh, the conflict, especially since 
unlike uh, the other wars, the Vietnam War, I mean, the mail was, was running pretty quickly. It's possible that you could be given something away, especially since they had a news meter back then. Probably not too much different than back now than what we got now. Uh, they had no problem just publishing whatever. Because they think everybody was lying anyway. So and then if you're telling the truth, they, they didn't care if it, it could possibly endanger somebody. It's journalism. We have to do it. So they, they were kind of good about making sure they didn't put that in there. So again, you got letters from those folks that don't reveal a whole much other than the normal stuff about, you know, can't wait for this to get over. Can't wait to get home. Now, there's a lot of there's been a lot of talk in wars and especially during wartime correspondence. OK, and this is a, a note for the history books, folks, going forward and other wars in the future. OK, if you hear anybody say that, you know, this war is going to be over by Christmas, try to find out a way that you can punch them in the face. OK, because you're being lied to. And nobody's going to have a war that ends before Christmas, okay? That's just one of those things they tell people psychologically to, to keep them motivated. But it's a lie. It's been a lie for about 300 years. Because <laughs> it's been told, like, in every conflict that we've ever had. I mean, I'm seriously, like, every one of them. So please um, don't take that stuff seriously. We'll see it in letters as well, too. And, hey, they say, Mom, this is going to be over before Christmas. Yeah, okay. So... Let's kind of keep that in mind. Everyone listens to the show in the future. <laughs> Please don't don't take that sort of stuff seriously. Okay, you know, cover your ears or run for cover or, or just smack them in the head because it is it isn't real. But I really liked uh, bringing this about this show on on uh, correspondence and writing in general during during the wartime. Obviously, there's a million directions we can go to. This is where I chose to do it today. We might have another show in the future where we can go in depth on some other things. But I'm definitely looking to, to forward to doing a show on uh, wartime, not wartime, but uh, correspondence from people from jail that they made a difference. Okay? Because we have a, a number of them that we could be talking about. Um, a number of them that were published uh, and that we're, we're aware about. Um, the letters from Martin Luther King. Uh, the ones from Bobby Sands, uh, the uh, Irish activist from the uh, uh, talking about the IRA. He actually got elected to, as a member of parliament in, 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 a, um, in a writing campaign while he was still in jail, starving himself as he's writing these letters. Uh, so and I think um, there's a number of ones we could write. Uh, Vaclav Havel wrote some where he was in jail from the communists in Czechoslovakia. There's, there's a lot. So we could definitely have an a, a interesting show about that and, and the impact on how a lot of those letters came about to this day as serv serving as real major pieces of, of uh, philosophy and, and work against uh, regimes that were, uh, that were unjust. In the meantime, uh, keep in mind that we do have a full uh, November schedule that I put out there. Hopefully lots of people have access to it. I'm continuing to send out. So... Later this week, we'll, we'll be doing uh, my show. I've been finally wanting to do on Octavio Paz, the Mexican writer, won a Nobel Peace Prize, an incredible writer. We'll be talking about him and his life. Uh, then we're doing the female gender in writing, so that's going to be very interesting, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one. I've gotten already some email from people saying, I can't wait, so that's great. Hopefully I get some good email uh, uh, when the show's over it that they really liked it, so that'll be nice. Uh, we're doing um, our classic Spotlight. On John Ashbery, the great uh, avant-garde poet. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I was able to record earlier in the month, and it's going to be coming out on the 19th of November. This is our first special type of interview, and I'm hoping to do more, providing I get some people to cooperate. 
where we talk about a magazine and its editors and, and the stuff they're looking for, what they're trying to do, you know, what editors should do or shouldn't do in general, some of their philosophy from Bombfire. And I got uh, both of the uh, the uh, editors on there, um, uh, Leanne Denman and, and Rich uh, Boucher. So that's going to be interesting. We got a really uh, a cool standalone show after that uh, called The Mirror and the Window. It's going to be a discussion on self. We all know as writers how oftentimes we have to be, um, I don't know if you want to call it borderline, or maybe just occasionally narcissistic. Sure, we have to because we have to be considering ourselves, our own mental health, our own uh, feelings, our own worldview, because that's what we're doing when we're putting aside the time to do the writing. Uh, but where we go from there in terms of how that might affect the rest of our life and what we should do to pull back and what others haven't or have, well, it's a good way to talk about that so that we can understand some of the things that we could be going into that could be a problem that maybe we want to push back from and try to find some kind of balance. A lot of artists don't believe there should be a balance. You know, I know there's artists that said, the heck with your family, you got to stick to your writing. You know, and others are like, no, I got to find a balance. So you got ones that said that. Uh, uh, Kafka is a perfect example of that. Lily wrote letters about that. The hell with these people. I just want to write. Uh, where And then, of course, you got people uh, like Shirley Jackson that wrote novels about how much their children were funny and, and drove them a little nuts, but they really helped, uh, you know, balance her life and, and bring her joy and love and how she could still write. And she did. She was still prolific and still wrote. It just didn't take care of herself health-wise, unfortunately. But other than that, there's an example on the other side. So we'll have a lot of to talk about about that, and it, it'll be interesting and it's not really a topic that most people bring on these shows. I, I don't know. I might be the first person to really talk about that sort of thing, you know, without going overboard. Could you going to have, you'll hear it briefly talked about, you know, they're so selfish, they're this, they're that, but they're still artists, this is for their genius, and blah, blah, blah. You know, there's more to it than that, and that's what will bring that show out. All right, and then we'll end the month after Thanksgiving with uh, uh, the final uh, mailbag show for the year uh, called Mailbag 6, The World Speaks. This is uh, a show where I'll have a lot more email from around the world. I've gotten a lot more international email. The last mailbag we did, we brought up, I think it was like two letters that we came in. The first like two that really, now we got a lot more now. So more, more people listening to us from around the world. You know, we got, uh, I got my first listener from Ethiopia. Let's hope that, you know, that continues on with more, more people from there. You know, uh, Mauritania is, is, is increasing, and with this, I'm just really excited that we have had more of these countries come on board than, than ever before. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, my first listeners in Uruguay, by the way, too, so thank you. All right, folks, so until next time, this was episode 161, Writing During Wartime, Strength to be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi. God bless. Good night. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.